Dear Father, here we are before you, and it's as though your intervention and your kindness, uh, your sacrifice has become more real than perhaps we bargained for this morning. Uh, Thank you nonetheless that it's not just seemingly more real, but in the case of our sister, it is definitively more real. Uh, Thank you, God, that uh, she is comforted now. Uh, Thank you, God, that... uh, that, that, that your blood counts for something rather remarkable. Yes. And I, I pray, God, that if in anything it, it sobers us uh, to our own state before you, yeah. uh, she's fine. Uh, her family rejoices. But I pray that for any of us, that, that, that we would um, not take lightly, not trifle uh, with, uh, with, with all of eternity. Uh, and uh, Lord, help us to, to be keenly, Grateful uh, for our our eternity with you, if indeed that's the case. But but then also um, eager for that to be the case if it's not. Uh, Lord, thank you that we can see a bunch of disciples that we as we read these pages that understood this, understood it fully, and could not be stopped because they understood it so well. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 So uh, Acts chapter five is where we go now. And last, uh, last couple of weeks, I've, I've been at uh, meetings. I've talked to the, the brothers about this on Tuesday, but our, our leadership of our churches came together and that was all quite encouraging, but it did take me away from here. And I know that uh, both Tim and Tony uh, were able to, to bring us through some really remarkable sections of text, uh, all the while hearing great, great news about all of us striving to live in alignment with the Holy Spirit prompted uh, text that, that has been guiding us. And now we, we uh, head into Acts chapter 5 to close out a section of text that all began back in chapter 3 when a man who was born disabled, lame from birth, was miraculously healed by the authority by the name of Jesus Christ, right there in the middle of the temple. And it shook everything up that all of the events that we'll look at all have occurred. And it's all one continuous story right up until this point that we now conclude it in uh, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 25. In verse 24, we, we were just marveling at the nail biter of all nail biters uh, when I was younger, there would be certain cartoon series that would leave you with a literal cliffhanger and say, you know, continued next week. Uh, and I wish then that, you know, there was something called Netflix that I could have just not watched and then been watched later and say, well, I'm just going to wait five minutes. But I had to actually wait a week then. But what we read last week talked about the disciples having been miraculously sprung from jail. And it said, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. This was the the guards reporting this to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish authorities that were trying to clamp down on the preaching of Jesus. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard, who was kind of second in line to be the chief priest, and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. 
Now, in case you thought, you know, let me let it be a cliffhanger until next Sunday. Well, now you'll know. Uh, but of course, you could have read ahead too. But let's, let's go ahead and read and see what it is that this led to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. Again, when we see captain here, nothing close to a mall cop trying to guard the grounds of the temple. This is a very respected, august position, perhaps, again, just, just next in line to the chief priest. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. Again, lots of firepower bringing them in. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. This is a bit of a new development that the preaching of Jesus is so irrefutable. The preaching of Jesus is bringing about such remarkable repentance and deliverance that the number of believers that initially began with Three to six thousand, depending if we're counting men and women in the way that the Bible was counting them, has now gone to ten thousand. And ten thousand people have now just been delivered from an empty way of life. Ten thousand people have been unshackled from a treadmill of fruitless, frustrating, sinful behavior. They've been unshackled from the shallowness of worldly approval. And now have transcendent, purposeful lives. These 10,000 are also spreading the news to others. So you could imagine why the captain guard and the chief priests and bringing in the heralds of this message that has brought such deliverance would be a bit skittish as to what might happen to them if they try to use a bit too much force. So it's almost like the tide is a turning. Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We've already discussed the Sanhedrin. It is a crucible of intimidation. The 70 most respected Bible scholars, community leaders, have all, in a semicircular fashion, gathered around, peering in as if you're concentrating the rays on the sun on an ant that you want to burn. Not that I've ever done that. Uh, but, but, but concentrating all of their focus on... On the disciples, again, to bring the heat their way. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So again, in this intense scrutiny... In the, the council, here is Peter, John, the apostles being questioned, cross-examined, and here's the brilliance. We've already looked at how bold, Je that, uh, bold Jesus has made Peter, but now look at how rather than allow this intimidation amphitheater have its effect on him, how quickly and, and deftly Peter is able to imitate Christ. Just as all these same characters tried to bring the cornering of Jesus with questions on the Temple Mount just about a hundred days earlier, where they tried to trap him about taxes to Caesar, tried to trap him with questions like, by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Same questions they're asking them. 
And how easily Jesus turned it on them to say, you know what? You all, I'm going to ask you a question too. And I know the crowds are here listening, but I'm going to ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it just from man? And then I love that because rather than answering, all these same characters that are here right now kind of huddle on up and they have a humana, humana, humana moment. And they say, think quick, rabbit. What do we say? Because if we say from man, well, they're going to stone us because everybody knows that John was a great prophet. And if we say from heaven, well, then they're going to say, well, then why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you believe what it was that that John was bringing? Um, So here's what we'll say. We don't know. I got nothing. I got nothing. And then they go away with their tail between their legs. And now in this moment, men that have been with Jesus, men that have behold Jesus, now look back at this fire coming their way. And Peter says to them after they say, you have filled Jerusalem after we told you to shut up. And now, what do you have to say? Peter and the other apostles replied, verse 29, we must obey God rather than human beings. Or said more precisely, we must obey God rather than you. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. We'll we'll study that word in a moment. Why? That he might Give Israel, the little word there is to give, to gift to Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. This is courtroom language at its finest. The whole idea is we are witnesses, you're not the witnesses here, we're the witnesses, so is the Holy Spirit, so is God, and guess what? You're on trial, not us. And you hold no sway over us because we are men who now obey God rather than the corruption of religion that you have created. When they heard this, you could imagine what the Sanhedrin's response was. They were furious. The word there is the idea of cutting one's heart, which, which could be a positive in some scenarios, but it wasn't. It was almost as an explosion of their hearts that erupted in fury. They were furious and wanted to put them to death and seemingly were ready to. But a Pharisee, which would have been a minority on this Sanhedrin populated by Sadducees, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Gamaliel is, in, let's say, Jewish culture, a bit of a rock star. He is an honored man. He is a righteous man. He is beyond reproach. Uh, When he died, Josephus writes, that the light went out of the Torah. Uh, He was that well honored. He was also, by the way, the the personal tutor of none other than Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. Uh, So we get a bit of a a glimpse of him early on here. 
So a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored among all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers dispersed. And it all came to nothing. It all burned off like so much morning dew. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. And uh, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. I don't know if this is a a full on scourging. I, I don't think it is the type of scourging that would leave you with hypovolemic shock, a blood loss to, to such a degree that you were barely alive. That's the scourging that Jesus received because he received a Roman scourging, which is radically different than what Deuteronomy describes as the 40 minus one lashes. Uh, this would have been a, a, a rather pronounced uh, discipline that would have been brought their way, but it wouldn't have been the scourging that I think that Jesus would have had. Uh, they were restricted from that. Matter of fact, in some of the, the Mishnah, it says that if, if blood begins to even appear during the midst of the 39 lashes, that you're to cease the scourging at that moment. The Jewish version, not the Roman version, but these are Jews and they're getting the Jewish version of it here. Uh, so they were, they were scourged. Uh, and, and here's the, the, amazing, the amazing thing here. The apostles, uh, so his peace persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Let's do it one more time, this time with a whip in our hands. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, remember what just happened here. Don't speak anymore. Day after day. I'm sure with every one of those 39 lashes, you're not going to talk anymore, right? You're not going to talk anymore. Out they come. Yes! Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Hallelujah! Hallelujah is right. What in the world? How amazing is this? These are repentant people. Who rejoices for being able to have the honor of being flogged? To being flogged in the name. The the thing that Jesus came to bring, this passage says, was repentance and forgiveness of sins. And praise God that there is the double cure. And we've already looked at this because the whole section began in Acts chapter 3 with the very idea. The, the, the very first sermon that kicks all of this off is Peter in the first sermon to, after this miracle, the second sermon ever of the early church, ends with the proclamation, repent. Repent and turn to God that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 
And clearly these are men, as well as the 10,000 that have joined them, these are men that have repented. Metanoia, the original word. A radical transformation of their mindset. Noia, mindset. Meta, as in metamorphosis. A radical transformation. They do not regard anything the way that they used to anymore. If, if they were here for good news sharing on Tuesday night, they'd be raising their hands furiously. We would answer them, yeah, what, what is it? We were brought in and we were flogged. 39 times they whipped us saying, don't preach anymore. Don't preach anymore. And we're like, wow, this is good news sharing. Wow. And we rejoice for being counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Those are people, again, metanoia is where you make sense of everything from a radically different worldview. And it's not even a worldview. It's a kingdom view, a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God view that now informs Everything that's going on about you. That's what Jesus came to bring. That's the great gift of the double cure. Not just the removal of the debt of your sin so that you can stand before the judgment seat. Radiant and remarkable as, as our sister is. Not just that, but so that even now that you could be set free from the ugliness and the emptiness of our old way of life. So that you become part of the irrefutable evidence of the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And one after another, these repentant 10,000 made the message that much more powerful because there were 10,000 testimonies running around that could not be denied. Now, as we, as we look at this passage, I want to zero in a bit on one, one particular phrase here. And in verse 31... It says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. That word prince appears a lot in our Bible. Sometimes it's translated author, author and perfecter of our faith. And other times it's leader. It, 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 it's a, uh, a word that would have been known to the people hearing it as, well, the, the Greek word is archagos. And let, let's, let's take a look at that. Archegos. And what Archegos would have most commonly been associated with, with people, whether you're in a, a Jewish society or anywhere within this, this whole Roman Empire, it would have been associated with Hercules. Like, that's the main identifier of Hercules. Hercules was what's known as not only a hero in, in the most classic sense, but also, maybe more technically, a champion. And a champion is what Archegos is. A champion is the one who goes out first from among the lines of the army to be able to fight the battle for the rest of the troops. And that perhaps you could spare the thousands if the Archegos could go against it. Uh, we, we would uh, see that perhaps in the movie Troy, uh, where, where you see Achilles go out to be able to fight. And, and as he's going out, they say to him, please... Go out and fight. Look at the faces of the hundreds that you'll save. If you would go out and be our champion. If you would be our hero. But again, the, the most common association with this would have been with Hercules. I've got a clip here uh, from one of the Hercules renditions movies. Where you see the uh, kind of marauding army that's uh, coming up against the Greeks here. And, and this is their champion. Challenging Hercules to come out as champion as well. 
And, and this is the idea of what a champion does. That he comes out from among the rest to represent the rest and to fight for the, for, for, for the uh, valor of all of the people. But now, that kind of infused electricity, enthusiasm that goes into Archegos is now being applied to Jesus. And he's just not merely our lamb. He's just not merely our king. He's just not merely even our savior. But he's also our champion. Our Archegos. We would be familiar with this idea in the Bible. Where would we be familiar with a champion in the Bible? Exactly. David and Goliath. In uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 4 says, A champion named Goliath was from Gath. He came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000. Well, you, 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 we know the story. Ultimately, it, it comes around to David being able to defeat, to, to be the, the champion of the Israelites, to go up against the most intimidating of all champions that the Philistines had to offer. And so as we look at this word archagos, and, and we think of it in terms of even the story of, of David and Goliath, we, we keep in mind that that story is meant to be a story that points towards God's redeeming of a people that cannot redeem themselves. Right In that story... What are all the Israelites doing when the intimidation of Goliath, the champion, comes out? They are cowering in fear. They are shaking in their sandals. Matter of fact, it says in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 17, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, when they saw the champion, fled from him and were much afraid. Uh, and thus, my, my first point, we are not the hero. This is super important. If we're ever going to know what it's like to be like the apostles who never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. If we ever want to get to that place, we've got to recognize I am not the hero. Say that for me. Well, actually, I thought you would all say, Ed, you're not the hero. But no, that's fine. It applies to you too. But yes, we are not the hero. We're not the hero of our own drama. We are the Israelites cowering. For us to say, you know what, but I just need to face my Goliath. Okay, let's say that that's the way that you go about trying to be heroic for the cause of Christ. Right? You read a story like David and Goliath. And, and you, you're done reading it, and at the end of reading it, you need to ask yourself, is this story chiefly about me, or is it chiefly about God's redemptive plan, thus about Jesus? And woe to us if we read that story and say, this is kind of about me. I just need to rise up, bow up against my Goliath, say, bring it on. That would be... A tragic mistake because Christianity would flourish for a moment and then collapse under its own weight 
Because you could never live that out day in and day out to the degree that Jesus needs you to, to never stop teaching and preaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be sustainable. But now, if instead you realize, like the Israelites did, we have a champion. Right? We can't go out there against Goliath. We get it. We're not equipped. We want to. We'd love to be able to rise up. I'd like to not have to pay taxes is, is what, part of their benefit of, of going out. No more taxes. And I get the king's daughter. And I get exalted. And there's glory. Maybe I'll give it a shot. But, but again, only for an instant. But as soon as perseverance is required, we shrink on back. And Christianity goes dormant. But when you realize, wait a minute. Who is that unlikely David that's going out there right now? Who is that David that's going out there with no armor? Who is that David? Who is this deliverer that is going out as my champ? I have a champion. He doesn't look very impressive, but I have a champion. So do they. That's an impressive champion. But I have a champion. And as we're all cowering, out goes our champion. And the best that we can do is say, I don't know how you're going to pull this one off, God. But if you can, you know what? Give the kid a shot. It all it took was one shot. And he took his shot and down he went. And what happened after he was able to vanquish the champion? Then all Israel became bold. This is, this is the important part. And that while we are not the champion, we have a hero. I am not the hero, but point number two, we have a hero. And... The moment that David was able to vanquish Goliath, and the moment that he was able to, to, to raise, raise the head of Goliath, it says that all Israel became bold. And what did they do? They rose up from their hiding places, and in unison, charged, ran down the hill, vanquished the Philistine army, and all of the Philistine army was strewn along the path as they brought about absolute conquest. What was it that made them bold? Realizing that they have a champion. And what is it that makes us bold? Knowing that we have a champion. We have a hero. This word archegos is used of Jesus in Hebrews a couple times. Let me read a section here in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, not crowned with glory and honor, Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the archagos, the champion, the hero of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy And those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We have a hero. And it's Jesus. And if we recognize that just as David rose up and vanquished Goliath. And all those who saw that were like, yes, off we go. Likewise for us, it's not about you getting up in the morning and saying, who's my Goliath? Who am I going to take on today? 
Who am I going to take down? It's you realizing Jesus has already done it. And now heroes, as they are honored today, are honored because they are selfless, because they go after an agenda not their own. They do it not for selfish gain. But also, all heroes that are honored today, and think of the pantheon of Marvel movies or even Justice League, but if we have a hero that is in some way compelling to us today, what does that hero have besides courage? He has superpowers. And Jesus doesn't just have superpowers. He has all powers. All powers. He is the author of life. He's the champion of all life. He created all things. All things are held together by him. Jesus is not just has all power. Jesus is power itself. But unlike any of the other heroes, except for a little spat in Superman 2, Jesus, Jesus comes to be your hero by stripping himself of every power. He doesn't come out from the lines, king of kings, lord of lords, sword coming from his mouth, the sun blazing from his eyes. He could have, but instead he comes emptied. Philippians 2 tells us. He emptied himself of all power so that you might have more than a champion. You might also have a savior. And that's how he's described here. Champion and savior. Hero and lamb. It's the most unlikely of all connections and mashups. But it all comes together in Christ. And as you think about heading out for your day, thinking, I'm going to take on my Goliath, you don't need to worry about that. Jesus has taken on the greatest Goliath there ever could be. It's a Goliath that is an amalgamation of all evil, of all worldly pressure, and of all fleshly indulgence. All that rails against us, all that wants to constrain, imprison us, all that rails against us and wants to destroy us, Jesus takes on, but he takes it on having been emptied. And that means that when he takes it on, it takes real courage on his part. Not just positive thinking, but real courage. It requires him to pray to the Father, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. This is not just bring it on the cup. No, he realizes, he is emptied. That what he's about to do for us is not a power play. That what he's about to do for us is powerful, but is one that is done by absolute humiliation, bringing on the shame of all of us, bringing on the sin of all of us, that he will take all of that on in the most ultimate of all battles. And in doing so, takes down the Goliath that holds any sway over you. He's already been taken down. The devil, evil, world, lusts, flesh, self-centered, all of that stuff, Self, sin, all of it, all of it has been vanquished. 
Because Jesus came out from the lines as we were too cowardly to ever, ever imagine doing for ourselves. Too powerless, too bankrupt in our own morality to ever do for ourselves. Never to be able to know the repentance that could be ours to live different lives, but only because our Lamb, our champion, comes out from the lines for us. And having made us holy with him, not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Because he then gives us, in his final words, as Luke records them, before he ascends, these words. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached by all of us in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of this. The very deliverance of repentance and forgiveness that he effected for us as our champion, he now says, go now. I've raised the head in victory. I have vanquished. I have triumphed over it by the cross, Colossians 2.14. I have already secured the victory. Let's go in unison. Let's go to be able to bring the victory, to bring repentance to all those. But we don't just have a hero. We have a joy because he had a joy. And this is incredibly important. Why is it? Why is it that that he had this joy? What was his joy? Well, Hebrews speaks of it as well when it speaks of the Archegos. Hebrews 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the Archegos and perfecter of faith. For the joy, here it is, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, that obviously is what they did in Acts chapter 5. Because they never stopped. They never grew weary. They never lost heart. They kept on teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. But why? Why did Jesus go through with it? He had joy in heaven. What greater joy could there be? An absolute beautiful community unity that was his experience That would cause him to say, let me do this. Let me empty myself. Go down amongst the rabble that has completely thumbed their nose at all things holy. Let me go down amongst those that are so unworthy. Let me go down amongst them as they cower before the very idea of repentance. And let me come out from among their ranks. Why does he want to do that? Because you're his joy. Because you're worth it. He comes out to be your champion because you're his joy. Your repentance, your salvation is his joy.